My name is Thomas, and it's a joy to be together. I get to be on staff here at Calvary and uh, open up the scriptures on the weekends to be able to see what God has said and what God is teaching us as the church. We were looking at this series in Acts. We're going to be journeying through the series, through the book of Acts in this series. Uh, we've looked at the last two weeks in chapter one, and now we're going to be moving into chapter two, which is the historical account of the works of Jesus Christ through the Spirit by the apostles. This is the early days of the church, that Christianity is the most diverse group of people in the world. And we're asking, how did that happen? Where did that start? And Acts is the historical account of where that began. We said that church is not a place that we go, but it's the people of God who gather. The church is called the bride of Christ. It's called the body of Christ. Referred to in Acts as the way, those who follow the way of Christ. The body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the way of Christ. And it's the people who have professed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And, and we looked in the first chapter, Jesus has risen from the dead and spent 40 days now, 40 days, with his disciples after Passover to show them convincing proofs of his life resurrected, teaching them about the scriptures and the things that had to be fulfilled and what was fulfilled in the work of Christ on the cross in his death and resurrection. And we saw in the, end of, in the end of chapter one that Christ then ascended to the Father and promised the disciples what the Father has promised them, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit, that they would be baptized in the Spirit not many days from now. Jesus has given them a commission to now take the things that they have been taught and the things that they have seen, things of the kingdom, and go be witnesses as ambassadors of citizens of heaven to the world, that the world would know the things of God, what he has accomplished in his salvation for all mankind. But before they're to go, they are to wait in Jerusalem of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Because they don't need to go as witnesses on their own strength or their own energies, that the ministry would fail completely if they were going out under their own strength. But they are to wait in Jerusalem, not many days from now, Jesus has said, in which the Spirit will come and baptize them. Now we op open up Acts chapter 2, and we're going to see this day of Pentecost about the Holy Spirit. Now to be, to be fair, we are moving from the shallow end of the pool into the deeper things of God today. But we want to talk about the Holy Spirit. The first thing you need to know about the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit isn't an it. He's a he. Not because he's male, but because he's a person not just simply a force. And so the Holy Spirit is a he, the third person of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so the promise of the Holy Spirit is the person of God to come and dwell in the believers. And it's absolutely essential to the Christian life to have the Holy Spirit. And so we're gonna talk about what is the Holy Spirit today or who is he? John Stott, the Anglican, uh, minister puts it this way, the importance of the Holy Spirit to the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit is so very important. Without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There could be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ-likeness of character apart from his fruit, and no effective witness without his power. As a body without breath is a corpse, so the church without the spirit is dead. 
That's the weight of the material we're looking at today. And the reason we want to talk about the Holy Spirit and talk about the way we do today is because I don't want you to be misled or misinformed. I don't want you to be misled to think that being baptized in in the Spirit is something more than it actually is. Searching and seeking these experiential, visceral experiences to authenticate your faith and to overemphasize the work of the Spirit in your life. Nor do I want you to be misinformed about your need for the Holy Spirit, that it is impossible to faithfully follow Jesus without Him. That many people in the room are trying to do the Christian life on their own strength, trying to put to death like addictions and behaviors, things that God says that, that are not for us, and then try to cultivate things that are of love and joy and the zeal of our salvation based on our own strength. And we're frustrated, discouraged, disheartened because we're trying to do this without the supply of God's promise, the Holy Spirit. It's not possible to do the Christian faith without him. In fact, this is the day in which the prophets spoke about. Back in Ezekiel, God says, okay, there's coming a day, there's going to be a day in human history where things are going to be different, where I'm actually going to give people a new heart. I'm going to take out from them a heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, and I'm going to put my spirit in them. This is Ezekiel chapter 36, 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules or my commands. That the Spirit of God is going to one day dwell in the people of God and actually change their preferences and appetites, their palate for things in this world. And it will cause them to be able to do the things that God has called them to do. In fact, it's the Spirit of God in us, working in us, that allows us to work out our salvation. Paul tells us that we should, we're supposed to work out our faith. That we conform to the image of Christ, but that's not on our own strength, but what comes from God dwelling in us. This is Philippians 2, verse 13. It says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives to cultivate in us our faith. And so many in the room who are very discouraged with your Christian faith right now, Like, I've tried to follow, I've tried to obey, I've tried to read my Bible, I've attended church, and it just doesn't work. It's because you've been trying to do it on your own strength, absent of the helper that God promised to give us to change our hearts, to willing to work his ways out of us, in us, and through us, to be conformed to the image of his son. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. So I don't want you to be misguided looking for something that's not or misinformed thinking that you can do this on your own. We want to understand what is the normal Christian life being in the Spirit. And so if you got your Bible, we're going to Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. This is where the disciples are gathered, as Jesus promised them, in Jerusalem, praying, waiting for the promise of the Father that the Holy Spirit would come and baptize them. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues 
and the Spirit gave them, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Let's pray. Lord, these things are marvelous and there's quite a mystery here. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth here for us? Lord, help us to understand what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. To be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in our Christian faith. Lord, would you correct misunderstandings and would you teach us your ways, Lord? That we would be built up, strengthened, and encouraged. I pray for those in the room that have never heard these things. Or would you do a far better job explaining it to them than I can possibly do today? Would you help bring clarity to us that we would be able to walk in faithfulness with you? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Here's the scene. So there are three main feasts that people take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for. Pentecost is the third one. Pentecost comes 50 days after Passover. It's probably the, the third of importance for people to take a pilgrimage. And so those who have afforded, it's very expensive to take the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover, have come in. And Passover was the time in which Christ came in on the donkey, was crucified, dead, buried, and rose. And 40 days have happened since Passover. And then there's another 10 to go. So Pentecost happens 50 days after Passover. And many of those who have afforded the trip to come in for Passover have remained for the extra 50 days before returning home. And here, Luke is pointing out that what's represented are Jews from all over. He says, the known world. Verse 5, verse 5. There were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. So what Luke's trying to point out is that everyone in the world is here in Jerusalem. And they've come in to be able to celebrate the things of God, to remember what God has done through the Exodus and, and reminding themselves of the giving of the law and the, at Sinai and the covenant renewed at Sinai with Moses. And it's during this time in which the Holy Spirit that's promised by the Father comes. And this is a fulfillment, Peter saying, of the prophet Joel. That there's going to come a day in God's historical work of salvation 
that there's going to be a day in which there's like a linchpin, like a door hangs on a hinge that's going to be swung open, and we're going to enter a new era called the last days. There will be a final scene on the stage of humanity. And this final scene before Christ returns and makes all things new, wipes all tears, mends all wounds, rights all wrongs, God's going to pour out his spirit. And not just at a particular place like a temple, but he's going to pour it out into the lives of believers. That's what's happening here at Pentecost. That's what Peter's saying. This is a fulfillment of what Joel said. We know from Acts chapter 1, verse 5, this is a fulfillment of what Jesus had just promised them about a week or so earlier. Verse 5 says, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now, says Jesus. So when they are filled with, this Holy, with the Holy Spirit, that is a fulfillment of Jesus saying, you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And all of these nations, the world is coming together. And what's amazing is here in Acts, it says that they hear the sound of wind rush in. Now, we spent a lot of time in Exodus this last year. And so we should immediately know that when we see this idea of wind, this picture of wind, the sound of wind, which make, think, which make us think that's the presence of God. And then we, we spent time in Exodus and we saw the fire as a symbol of God's presence. For the believer, it's this purifying presence. For the unbeliever, it's a presence of judgment. But here we have the presence of God, and it's on individuals here in Pentecost. It says there's tongues of fire. Now, tongues simply just means tongues or, or languages, mouths. That's it. Now, we kind of relate this to like the idea of tongues and gifts, and we'll get to that in a second. But it's really just languages is being spoken. And the languages that are spoken are not unknown languages where we need an interpreter. The languages that are spoken here in Acts, as we see right here, are known languages. That the apostles are speaking, it says, known languages. And the hearers are hearing without an interpreter their known language, their local dialect, their local vernacular. And what they're hearing is the works of God that have been accomplished. Perhaps this is the gospel news being spoken to them. Now, Luke is setting up, as scholars point out, kind of a table of nations. That all the nations under heaven are present, and languages are being heard about the works of God. But they're being gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, if you're a student to the Bible and you're thinking, okay, when was the first time that there was a table of nations given that we're talking about languages? You might flip all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11. This is after the flood with Noah and his family, where the family of Noah comes out and they record all the descendants of Noah. And this is a table of the known nations of the world. And they spoke one common language. And then what happens is they rebel against God, their hardness of heart, trying to be equals with God. You kind of have this, this uh, scene which, like, which parallels this garden scene of rebellious against God, believing themselves to be God and making their way back to God. And God says, okay, well, we're going to come down. We're going to frustrate. We're going to confuse their languages. We're going to give the, all the nations that have one language many languages. And so all of a sudden, now they can't communicate. And they can't rebel against God together. And they are dispersed, it says in, in, in Genesis, all over the world. They probably leave according to the, with those according to who they can communicate with and talk with. And there's a scattering of people. And so what many would point to in, in Acts here is that you have the hinge coming, the end of the age. 
And what God's doing is he's gathering now all the nations. He's bringing the world together. And all the things that they hear, the works of God are spoken in their native language. How can this be? They say, aren't these all Galileans? How do we hear them speaking in our local dialects? This is amazing. They're hearing the works of God. And so what you're seeing is God's redemptive work is not just wrapped up in one people group, in one ethnicity. God's heart is for the nations, the world, and he's gathering the world in, under the name of Jesus Christ. And the new age, the end of the age, has now dawned, fulfilling what Joel had said, fulfilling what Jesus had promised, that the baptism of the Spirit would come. And the evidence of that here in Acts 2 is that they're speaking in tongues, known languages, proclaiming the works of God. Now, here's talking about clarity baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because there are some that would say, okay, baptism is, is two events. Uh, you're baptized in Christ, but then you need a second baptism in the Spirit. So we want to get really clear as, as best as we possibly can of what is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase, baptized in the Spirit, baptism is, is the word baptismo, means immersed, immersion in, which is why we do baptism of immersion here at Calvary. If you were attend a baptism service, we would immerse you, dunk you in water, immersed, and then bring you out. That's the baptism. It's a, a, a visual picture of immersion, of baptism. Now, that, those words of baptized in or with, however it's translated, the Spirit occurs in seven passages in the New Testament. Four which are in the Gospels, two are in Acts, and one is in Corinthians. The four in the Gospels are the kind of same accounts where John the Baptist is saying, I baptize with water, but someone greater than I is coming to baptize you with the Spirit. There's a day coming that this Jesus will baptize you with the Spirit. And Matthew and Luke actually say baptize you with Spirit and fire. And then the, those are four of the accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. One in each of the Gospels. And then there's this one we just read in Acts chapter 1, verse 5, where Jesus recounts back to, you've heard it said that John the Baptist baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Spirit. And then the sixth one happens in Acts chapter 11, verse 16 where Peter is recounting to those people in Jerusalem what God has done in Gentile territory with those who are outside the faith, that they were baptized with the Spirit too. This is awesome, Peter's saying, that God is for the whole world. He loves everybody, and those who would receive him, they too received the baptism in the Spirit. And all of those are speaking of the same event. John baptized with water, you're baptized with the Spirit. It doesn't give a lot of clarity of what is the baptism and when does it happen? The seventh that contains the same words, the same grammatical structures, the same case sensitive happens in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, where Paul is talking about the gifts and the works of the Spirit. And here in chapter 12, verse 13, he talks about the baptism of the Spirit. The same words, the same grammatical structure, this is what he says. For in one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So here he's, he's emphasizing there's not multiple spirits. There's one. He is the third person of the Trinity. And we were baptized by him into one body. What's this one body? This is the family of God, the body of Christ, the church, those who gather in the name of Jesus. So the baptism of the one spirit, not many, but one spirit, for in one spirit we were all baptized. Let's use our, our, our literal translation, immersed. 
in one spirit, we were immersed into one body. So that one of the works of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit, is to immerse us into the family of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the immersion, the baptism, into the family of God. When does that happen? So if that's the work of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit is the immersion of someone into the family of God, into one body. When does that happen? At conversion. What happens at conversion. So when someone repents, confesses their sins, professes Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they are at that time, at that moment, baptized by the one and only Holy Spirit who immerses them into the body of Christ. The question is, when did you become a Christian? Is when you got the Spirit. And that happens at conversion. The baptism of the Spirit is to immerse us into the family of God. That's the work of the Spirit that happens at conversion. Now, the New Testament also speaks about some other elements of being immersed into the family of God that happens, that coincides at the same time of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so, there are three things I want you to see that we're only, not only immersed in the family of God, but that the Holy Spirit indwells the believer and the Holy Spirit seals the believer for the day of redemption. That you're in the family of God, that God is in you, and that you are secure in the family of God through judgment day. So let me, let's take the first, let's take the second one. We looked at the first one, immersion. Second one is indwells. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is the indwelling spirit of God. So that he, he immerses you in the family of God and then you are immersed in the spirit. The Spirit of God actually takes up residence within the believer. This is what Ezekiel spoke about. I'm going to put my spirit, my presence, into the people who profess Jesus Christ so that they can be transformed, that their heart would be changed, that their appetites would be changed, that they'd be able to do the things that they're going to be called to do. This is why Jesus is telling his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit because your witness will be ineffective your life of ministry will be ineffective if you try to do it without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You only become frustrated and discouraged. And so the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside you as though you are the temple of God. Okay, the third one is that the Holy Spirit seals you. This is Ephesians chapter 1. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, this is speaking about conversion, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So at that same moment, this baptism of the Holy Spirit has immersed you in the family of God, has indwelt the believer, and now has sealed the believer. This is great confidence that we have, that we are kept by the power of the Holy Spirit in the family of God for the day of redemption. So this is the work of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you in the room are going, okay, hold on, time out. If Acts is talking about the baptism of the Spirit that's immersing people in the family of God, that's now indwelling the believer and sealing them, and the tongues you're speaking about are known languages, I thought tongues were like these private prayer languages that you, no one understood, they were unintelligible, like you needed an interpreter. What's with those tongues? Now, how many, how many people are asking that question? 
Don't lie. Come on, we're in church. You can't lie in church. Okay. Well, let me show you where this comes. Okay, there are two different things. That Paul actually speaks about those tongues. But he's reserving that to a category called gifts. He's not making it normative that every single person, as an authentication of the Spirit in their life, salvation for them, is evidenced by at least speaking in tongues one time. Do you need to speak in tongues to evidence that you are saved in Jesus Christ? No. This is where you don't want to be misled. No, that's not, not what Paul says. In fact, Paul points out explicitly right after this passage in 1 Corinthians that that's not true. So in, in 1 Corinthians 12, I'm going to flip over there. This is not on the screen. 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. And this is where our verse comes from, that in one spirit we were all baptized, immersed in the family of God. And he talks about being in the family of God. There are many members. There are hands and feet, there's eyes, there's ears, and not all have the same giftings or functions. But the gifts of the Spirit have been poured out according to his own choosing. And the gifts of the Spirit are, are for two reasons. To glorify God and build up the church. They're to glorify God and to build up the church. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are for. And so he goes and says, not everybody has the same gifts. And so check out verse 27. It says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Like we're in the body, but individual members. And God has appointed in the church first apostles and second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, various kinds of tongues. Are all prophets, are all apostles, sorry, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? What's the implied answer there? No. No, it, no not everyone does those things. But there's a unique gifting that the Spirit chooses as He has brought you into the family of God and dwells inside you. So Paul explicitly says, okay, tongues are not evidence of true salvation. But tongues are a gift given to the church. And all gifts are to be used to glorify God and build up, edify people. And so he goes into this whole list of how you actually use these tongues, these, these heavenly languages, so to speak. Because if you're going to speak in church and no one understands you, what's the point? Because the gift is to be building up of the church. And so he says, okay, if no one's going to be able to interpret what you say, then why say it? It doesn't encourage you. How can I be encouraged if I don't even know what you're saying? That's his point here in tongues. And he's like, okay, if we're going to speak in tongues, and you're going to, have to do it orderly in the service. That's fine. But only two people. At max, okay, you can have three. But we're not having this, like, large, like, group of people just babbling on, and no one understands anybody. No, the, the Spirit is giving these gifts for the building of the body, and we're to execute the gifts in an orderly and reasonable fashion. Now, Paul even prioritizes this gifting of tongues. He says, okay, I have tongues. And I wish for you that you would be given the gift of tongues. He's probably like, this is great. But here's the thing. If we're in the church, Paul says at the end of 14, I would rather speak five intelligible words of mind than 10,000 tongues. You know what he's saying there? I, I want to speak five words that you can understand to build up your faith to encourage you, to strengthen you, 
to inspire you to follow Christ. Five intelligible known words than 10,000 tongues that no one hears. That's the priority of, of tongues. So it's very important to understand the baptism of the Spirit is to be baptized, immersed in the family of God, in dwelling of the person of the Spirit in your life, and sealed through the day of redemption. That's the baptism of the Spirit. And when does it happen? At conversion. Now the gifting of tongues is a gift given by the Spirit. And like all gifts are to be used in service to bring glory to God and build up the church. Now some of the room will go, okay, time out. I've had this experience though. Like, I, I was saved and people told me I need another baptism. And so I asked them, well, what does that mean? They said, okay, you need to confess your sins. Be right with God. You're gonna ask for the baptism of the Spirit to come upon you. And I did that. I resurrendered my life to God and, and the community was around me and I had this experience where I felt God's presence in my life and perhaps I did speak. Perhaps I saw, perhaps I experienced something that I don't know how to explain. What is that? Is that not the baptism of the Spirit? I said, no, I think, I think you mislabeled it. According to the scriptures, that's called the filling of the Spirit, which is actually an imperative. It should be normative for the Christian life, that we would be filled with the Spirit. So check out Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 says this. Do not get drunk on wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is an imperative. What we see in Acts is a description. Here is a command. We're commanded as people who belong to the family of God. He's writing to the church. Who are indwelt by the Spirit. Who are sealed by the Spirit. You are to be filled with the Spirit. And, and Paul actually does a really cool thing here. He gives this word connection with being drunk on wine. To understand the filling of the Spirit. It's pretty cool. So, if someone is drunk on wine and they go and drive and get pulled over, they get a ticket. What's the ticket called? A DUI, driving under the influence. They're operating their life under the influence of alcohol. They've filled themselves with alcohol and now they're under the influence of alcohol and they're operating their life under this influence. He's like, okay, don't do that. That's debauchery. Here's what you should do though. You should be filled with the Spirit. That you should be under the operational influence of the Holy Spirit. The one that God says is going to put in your heart and cause you to want and change your preferences. And be able to carry out the things that he's called you to. Be under that influence in an increasing measure. Like someone would get drunk on wine and fill themselves with alcohol and they'd be under influence. Be filled with the Spirit that dwells inside you. This is why in the book of Acts, as we go through it, you're gonna see that it says that Peter was then filled with the Spirit and began to teach. And then the Spirit filled Peter and he began to say. Then filled with the Spirit, they healed. And so there is the baptism of the Spirit, which is a one-time event, a conversion, and then there is the continual imperative of being filled with the Spirit. And being filled with the Spirit is for the sake of your Christian faith, your walk, and your ministry to others. Because we don't want to do that on our own strength. It's not possible for us to do this on our own strength. So this is why the New Testament writers go to great lengths saying, okay, be filled, and then don't, don't quench and don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Here's, here's Ephesians 4, 20. Or 4, 4, 30, sorry. 
says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So the one that sealed you and brought you into the family, don't grieve him. Don't grieve his influence in your life. Don't, don't try to reserve it to a little pocket, an area of your life. Here's, here's back to 1 first, first Thessalonians where he, Paul says specifically to the church in Thessalonica, do not quench the spirit. Don't quench his influence in your life. Now, how do you do that? Well, well, Paul points out in several places the difference between walking in the flesh, the things that quench and grieve the Holy Spirit's influence in your life, and then walking in the Spirit, things that manifest the life that we want in Christ. So here in Galatians 5, he points this out pretty vividly. Galatians 5, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I mean, there's things that you want to do and follow God, and you're trying to do it, but you've got to walk by the spirit. Don't quench and grieve the spirit. Don't try, don't try to gratify the flesh. These things are opposed so that you can't do the things that you really want to do, which your new heart that God's given you wants to do and carry out. He goes on, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that no one who does such things will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who make a life of doing these things, they don't love the Lord. But we know that we once loved doing these things and we came to Christ and as Paul says in Romans 6, we have crucified the flesh so that we are no longer slaves to sin, but these, still, these things like show up and they're opposed to the new life that we want. It's okay, when, when you entertain things like this, when you do things like this, you're grieving, you're quenching the work of the Spirit in your life so that you can't even do, you're not even able to do the things that your heart wants to do. So don't quench and grieve the Spirit. In fact, you want to walk in the Spirit, and, and hear the attributes of the Spirit. If you want to, you're, set, put, you're supposed to set your mind on, to think about these things, to pursue these things of above, this is what the DNA of the Spirit is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you see these things, this is the evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. This is what I want in my life. This is the fullness and freedom from the addictions and the behaviors and the bitterness and the division in my own heart, the unforgiveness. Okay, you, you can't master that on your own. You need to walk in the Spirit, allow God's abiding presence to have His influence, to be able to cause and to work your salvation out, to be able to form you into the image of of Christ that comes through walking in the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, which is why we're always commanded. Christian, be filled with the Spirit. Be, like, you want to confess your sins? You want to repent and come back to the Lord? Like, Lord, I got caught up in my old flesh. It's killing me. And so I confess that again, and I ask God, would you fill me with your Spirit? Now, some of them are going, okay, hold on. I, I, I'm having a hard time tracking that we're indwelt by the Spirit. So the Spirit lives in us. 
in all of our faculties, in all of our bodies, like we're fully indwelt, but then you're calling us to be filled. How, if I'm filled with the Spirit, do I keep being filled with the Spirit? So here's a visual. I brought a balloon. All analogies break down. So don't send me an email of why this analogy breaks down. I'm fully aware of how this breaks down. But this is just to get your mind around it, okay? So at conversion, you repent and turn into the Lord and believe and profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It says that you are baptized with the Spirit, immersed in the family, that you are indwelt by the Spirit and sealed. It happens like this. You're filled and dwelt. There's no space inside this balloon that is not occupied by my breath. Like being in the Spirit, the Spirit of God fills your life and dwell. Is this balloon full? Yes and no. So if I said, hey, this balloon is filled with air. Yes. Be filled. Don't quench. Be filled. So are you filled with the Spirit? Because it dwells you and seals you and been with the, in the family of God. Yes. So what, is, what are we seeing visually? We're seeing the operational influence of the Spirit having a greater measure in your life when we're not quenching it. That's what we're seeing. And so when we're the Christian, we're commanded. Those who are indwelt by the Spirit, be filled. Be filled. Like, don't gratify the desires of the flesh that quench, that grieve, that limit the operational influence of the Spirit in your life. Trying to do the Christian faith on your own strength. Trying to be a witness to the world on your own strength. But friend, be filled. And it's this work of the Spirit that helps you put old habits, old behaviors behind you. That breathes life back into your marriage, back into yourself, into your community, into your own life. That's the work of God. This is why Jesus is adamant, don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. Because your work and your witness and your faith, like a corpse or a body without breath is a corpse, so is the church without the Spirit of God. So we're called to be filled with the Spirit. And so for those in the room that have never heard this before, so I heard about Jesus. I think you're supposed to just follow Jesus and do really good things and, and care for people around you. I never even heard of this. I don't even know what this means. What should be my next move? How do I receive Jesus Christ and receive his spirit? I've never actually repented and confessed my sins. What are you supposed to do? Well, that question was given to Peter. We're going to look at his speech next week, his sermon. By the end of his sermon, people asked him, what should we do if Christ has risen from the dead and he's the Lord and Savior of the world? What should be our response? And Peter tells him. This is the end of Acts chapter 2, verse 38. It says, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself. Do you feel God just calling you to himself? Do you sense his kindness and his compassion and his mercy, the victory over death for you? What's my response? Repent and believe on Jesus. Be baptized. And you will be given the Holy Spirit who immerses you in the family of God, who indwells you for the sake of your faith and that seals you in the confidence 
on the day of redemption. And for those in the room that have already made this profession and have already been indwelt by the Spirit, you don't need a second baptism. You too need to confess and repent and resurrender your life and say, Lord, I've been, I've been doing these things all wrong. I've been entertained with all the things that just that my flesh loves, my old nature. Start thinking about these things again and loving these things again, and I have quenched and grieved your operational influence in my life. Lord, I want to experience a fresh filling of your spirit. Breathe your spirit anew in my life. That's what I want. That's what I want to pray for you. We're going to sing the hymn of the Holy Spirit here in a second. What's cool is they've heard the gospel in their own language. They've received the spirit through repentance and belief in Christ. And then the known nations of the world leave Jerusalem with the gospel and the Holy Spirit back to their hometowns. Here's a map of what we're going to look at next week. So here in Jerusalem at Pentecost, they receive the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And then it explodes into the known world, God's salvation, into every nook and cranny that all the nations under heaven would know that salvation is found in Jesus Christ. What happened at Pentecost becomes a world missions conference in which everyone is sent out to go tell the good news. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for our community here. I pray for those who have never received Jesus Christ, who have sensed you calling them today, would do as Peter says, to repent and be baptized and receive your holy presence in their life to transform them, to change the outlook of their whole life and their future. And Lord, I pray for those in the room who have believed and have received the Spirit but have quenched him, who's actively grieving him with the life they're living. Lord, I too have been in these seasons. And so as a community member, Lord, we would just come before you and ask that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and that you would restore us according to your promise. And Lord, you command us to be filled with your spirit. Would you fill this room? Of all, anyone in this room who's asking that, would you fill them with your spirit? Anyone who's, who's asking you, Lord, to forgive them and to be filled this morning with your presence? Would you be so kind to fill them that their marriages and family, communities, relationships, their own struggles would not be met on Monday with their own strength, but yours. God, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that causes us to move and to live, the one that instructs us and, and teaches us that births in us generosity and compassion and mercy, hearts of forgiveness, truly brings the fruit into our life. It's in your name, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, we pray and give you thanks. Amen.